I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending October 11th. In this episode, packaging chips in the most advanced systems. You've got your multi-chip packages, you've got your chiplets, you've got your 3D stacking, you've even got 2.5D stacking. 2.5D stacking. Think about that. What can half a dimension be? I'm telling you, there are no rules anymore. But we're going to sort it all out for you. Also, conducting business in the Trump era. It's beginning to look like the court of the Sun King. Is this the new normal? And there's a growing enthusiasm for going to Mars. We'll be talking about getting there, which is one thing. But we'll also be talking about getting back, which is another thing altogether. Uh, then there's you know the story we had uh, this past week about these guys who have uh, one of the great aspirational goals I think I've ever heard, which is how do you get back? And their idea is we're going to send a 3D printer to the surface of Mars. It's the company Relativity Space that's making rockets and rocket uh, engine components using 3D printers. We'll get back to that in a moment. There are only a few companies able to build the most advanced integrated circuits. One of them, TSMC, recently hosted an event talking about the capabilities it has and those it's developing to bring into production in the next year or so. Kevin Crewell, an analyst with Tirius Research, attended the event. Semiconductor companies are getting diminishing returns from shrinking physical features, so the industry is looking to find other ways to achieve performance improvements. That has led the industry to investigate a host of new ways to connect chips together. It's possible there has never been so much innovation in IC packaging before. Kevin and I discussed that, and we talked about the competition among the small handful of leading foundries. A moment ago, I noted that the industry is getting diminishing returns from shrinking chips, but they are still getting returns, and they're not insignificant. I asked Kevin, what are the new semiconductor production processes that TSMC is offering for leading-edge semiconductors? Well, obviously, they gave us an update on where they are on their 7-nanometer roadmap and 5-nanometer roadmap and uh, the EUV status. And uh, they seem to be moving along. They've, they've got, they're developing a full EUV adoption uh, solution on their 7-nanometer uh, process. Uh, they are moving far fast along in that. They're also going to have a, a what they call an N6 node, uh, which is a cost-reduced version of the N7. Um, that's going to start some risk starts in Q1 of 20. So that, that allows you to take an N7 uh, design and relatively easily improve logic density and so do a, a die shrink. Um, but then they've also got the higher-performing version of N7, and... Um, and that'll be with the EUV, and that gives them sharper lines. And yet, the if you want to get the full benefit of the new uh, five nanometer process, you got to do some uh, some work on the, the physical design. So there's a couple of paths on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of the talk was on packaging, yeah. actually. And uh, they're 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 two and three D technologies. Um, their Coos and Info uh, are. are in production, uh, and Coos has been used by a number of vendors, uh, and they're they're moving towards a 3D packaging technology called SOIC, um, and uh, that's moving along. And this is more interesting in that they can stack 
uh, die on top of die without micro bumps. Uh, so what, what would be some people would call um, hybrid bonding between uh, the die. But well, unfortunately, apparently hybrid bonding is a, uh, a trademark term by somebody else, so they can't use that term. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but it, it, they're, they're well along on this chiplet uh, idea of breaking up and disaggregating large chip functions into smaller chip functions. Well, let me, uh, st- let me stop you for a second because yeah. there, there are a lot of different approaches to getting uh, more chips and chip functions together. And it's uh, it's confusing to me, and I'm wondering if I could g- get you to uh, kind of categorize them because we've got uh, multi-chip modules, we've got chiplets, which is conceptually slightly different, we've got uh, 3D stacking, um, and uh, as I understand it, SOIC which we still don't know exactly what it stands for. We'll figure that out. But uh, I understand that that's a separate category as well, also with slight differentiation. I'm wondering if I can get you to kind of run down what the different approaches are and, and what the differences, even if they're subtle, might be. Okay, well, let me. I'll, I'll do my yeah. best. Uh, so uh, multi-chip packaging was a number of die connected together inside of a package, usually using... Uh, some sort of um, either ceramic or phenolic, whatever normal packaging material you would use, and and the the various dye on the package are connected together through that through wires inside the, the packaging. Two and a half D is a technology where you take dye and you mount them on top of a silicon interposer, which is basically a, a big silicon wafer that has routing wires in that as well. And it usually uses bumps or micro-bump technology to attach the one die to the other die. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the silicon deposer is the big piece of silicon, and then they slap down other dies. And that's been used quite a, successfully in the past. Uh, I think Xilinx was actually one of the very first doing it, uh, where they broke up very large FPGAs into smaller silicon chunks and then used the interposer uh, to tie them together. Mm. Chiplets revolves around the concept of taking particular functions uh, that are fairly distinct, like a CPU pl- or multiple CPUs with our caches, mm-hmm. or um, a bunch of I.O. functions, or maybe a, a, a particular DSP function, or, uh, or a uh, machine learning function, and building those as individual little, little die, which, which they call chiplets, mm-hmm. and then mounting them either on an organic uh, interposer or a silicon interposer, and connecting multiple functions together. So basically kind of building block approach to a chip, but without integrating them all on the same silicon. And presumably you can get, uh, you could actually get different chiplets from different vendors as well, try to do best in breed functions. That would be a goal. Mm. Uh, the uh, There is uh, an effort to do that uh, under the auspices of the open compute platform, mm-hmm. There's a group doing um, an open, uh, trying to do an open standard for chiplets mm-hmm. so that uh, it's the open domain specific architecture um, movement where they want to be able to do that, where they can get chiplets from various different vendors and put them all together. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to allow these chips to talk to each other uh, because they're not designed directly to do that. Right. They're designed uh, that you need specialized 
serial deserializer certes to connect them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the ability of how do you power manage multiple die on on an interposer? Who manages that? How you manage that? There's a lot of work to be done, uh, but there is a an open uh, group trying to work on that. And uh, TSMC actually, I asked that question during the press conference, and they are supportive of that. They they also believe that the the chiplet idea is going to be very successful in the future and that we need to do more work to make it open. And um, But for now, most of the time, uh, you build a, um, a chiplet solution using chips from either within your own company, mm-hmm. in the case of how AMD built their uh, Epic processor. They, even though they use two different foundries and it's a heterogeneous solution that they're using both 7 nanometer and 12 or 14 nanometer, depending on the chip. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, there is a heterogeneous solution, and that's the people building chips with high bandwidth memory, uh, and they'll get memories from uh, various third party, like uh, obviously uh, like Micron or others, right. um, and then integrate that with, with the logic chip. So uh, it can be done with multiple chip vendors, and so there was work going moving ahead on that. Uh, and that is actually, I think that's an end goal, to be able to put all these little chiplets together and to make uh, a, a solution. And Today, it's what they would call 2.5D, where you use the interposer and, mm-hmm. and chiplets on it connected together. It really is more of a 2D solution in my mind. But eventually, the goal is to then start stacking chips on top of other chips, uh, and that would be a 3D solution. That's the solution that, uh, from uh, TSMC, they call SOIC, which I believe is Silicon on Interposer. And I'm not sure what the C stands for, but I think that would be probably what they're talking. So there's um, a lot of different um, conceptual approaches. There's 2.5D, 3D, uh, associated with SOIC in, in TSMC's case, uh, chiplets, multi-chip modules. To me, what I'm hearing is there are a lot of different approaches to combine different functions and different chips. And uh, the one thing that might be dissimilar from all of them is the interconnect technology, the ability to get um, the stacked chips in a 3D um, uh, module to talk with each other. Uh, Same thing with 2D, the way to get uh, chiplets um, uh, to talk to each other. Obviously, a little easier in a homogeneous uh, situation, but um, work to be done in a, in a heterogeneous operation. Is that uh, are these all different ways to skin a cat, or are these different ways to uh, do different things and achieve different goals? Uh, they are. There, there are different ways to achieve different goals. Um, mm-hmm. The two and a half D has breaking uh, functions. The chiplets has certain key advantages, and that is you can. By using smaller chips, you can optimize the particular silicon process for that function. Mm-hmm. Also, this, using smaller die, you actually get a much better yield on each of those individual die. And then you have to combine when you combine them together. The fallout for packaging them together, either you know, with either uh, organic or uh, silicon interposers, it's apparently fairly low right now. So it's not too bad. Um, when you start stacking 3D die, it gets really tough because uh, you have to rely heavily on uh, through silicon vias, the TSVs they call them, to um, run wire, basically run wires through the die from one die to the next. You also need to th- often you have to thin the die, uh, which is a, another process where you really grind down the die to a much thinner solution, so that the stacking doesn't take up too much space, and also so that the 
the, the resistance through the dye uh, through the TSV is very low. And then bonding them together is really hard. Uh, you could use micro bumps, but the real goal of the SOIC process from T uh, TSMC is to basically eliminate bumps and then have the uh, the, the, the dyes with zero differentiation between one to the other uh, bond. And there's ways of doing that with, with kind of a, a, a reflow and a re-annealing process, which is very uh, specialized and definitely you need to work <laughs> very, very closely with the uh, with the uh, foundry to get that to work. Mm -hmm. So that's a secret sauce that each of the foundries is going to be uh, very uh, protective of right now. Okay. All right. Uh, dare I throw in the concept of wafer scale in here? You could. Uh, in fact, you could throw that because we had Cerberus uh, present that at Hot Chips, and and also present they also presented at TSMC because TSMC is also their partner in building wafer scale. Wafer scale is the antithesis of chiplets. Wafer scale is saying let's take the whole wafer, and then stitch the various parts of the wafer that you would normally break up into individual chips and get them to communicate to each other and then just take that whole wafer and actually square it off. You slice off. So it's, wafers are round. They're like a size of a, a small pizza and you slice off the sides so they become square and then use that whole piece of silicon as a fully functioning device, one, one piece, one big chip. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're, we're definitely breaking new ground with service in that regard, where they're putting enough redundancy to bypass uh, defects in the in the silicon, how they handle the uh, heat expansion and contraction uh, of a full wafer, because uh, that's actually fairly significant when you have little tiny uh, connections you have to make to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a whole different area. Uh, I don't know how far they'll be able to take wafer scale processing. Um, it's very specialized. It's it's really only useful for very big systems. Mm -hmm. You're not going to put that in their phone or your PC. <laughs> <laughs> and and there could be a solution where instead of uh, and there are solutions where you build you tack a wafer to wafer, wafer on wafer processing. And a lot of the focus on that is uh, putting memory in one wafer, logic in another, and then putting them together and bump, you know, so they, they connect to each other, um, similar to SOIC. Oh, wow. And therefore, you have a very, very low latency access to memory um, and separating those two into two different processes, but you could bond those two together. Yeah, so there's there's actually work going on in that as well. That's That actually might be an interesting uh, solution to some of the memory bandwidth issues. Uh, you can get um, a higher performance that way. Wow. Last question. Um do you have any sense of uh, where TSMC is with all of its research and development of these different uh, uh, approaches versus some of the other foundries? Well, right now, I, I, TSMC seems to be in a pretty good leadership role. Um, Intel is doing some interesting work. They have an EMIP technology for connecting chips together in a cost-effective way uh, using a, a, a silicon channel with a uh, within a... Um, a organic uh, substrate. Uh, they're also doing some in other interesting work. Their light field uh, chip has a, a multi-chip module approach and some stack tie. So they're, they're actually also going down this path, but they're uh, a little more limited in that they are, it's focused on just uh, their own internal pro uh, products, um, whereas TSMC is, you know, obviously 
uh, a foundry, so they work with many different vendors to move this technology along. And I said TSMC is in pretty good shape right now in that regard. Well, cool. We'll see how all this shakes out. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. That was Kevin Crewell from Tirius Research. Kevin's story on the TSMC event appears on our website. It has additional details. For those interested in EUV technology, we recently published an article from Samsung on the subject, written by Dr. Yang Zhoujian, Principal Professional for the Foundry Business at Samsung Electronics. It's called, With EUV, Timing is Everything. Links are on the podcast page, and of course, it's in our perspective section on the web. The way the technology business used to work was, you had an idea, you did the engineering, you did some marketing and advertising, and you closed sales. Boom, you were in business. Maybe, once you got big, you might decide you wanted to do some lobbying, either through a trade association or, if you were really, really big, directly. But even that's not good enough anymore. Balaji Ojo, global editor-in-chief of Aspen Core Media, has been watching the news about President Trump's trade war against China, and it seems a single company that is affected has an advantage available to it that no other company does. That's on his mind this week. Here he is with international editor Junko Yoshida. So what's on Bola's mind this week? This week, uh, what's on my mind is also what's going to probably be on my mind next week. Uh, through the rest of this quarter and certainly in uh, parts of 2020, uh, principally, I'm looking at industry forecast, you know, for the electronics market. You know, how is this market going to perform? How will the companies that we cover perform? But, you know, focusing for this industry has always been problematic. It's an inexact science. We, we forecast demand that we often fail to meet. Um, we have manufacturing capacity utilization that we project will be 90 to 95%. And sometimes it's above that because uh, demand suddenly, you know, um, is higher than what we were projecting. And oftentimes, you know, capacity utilization is way below what we are projecting. And, um, you know, this is, this is the bane of the industry. Now, the reason why uh, this is now on my mind this week is because of recent developments where we have uh, political actors, external influencers impacting you know, what companies project and their ability to deliver it. Specifically, I'm talking about governments in every major region of the world. You know, from Boris Johnson in the UK doing what he's doing with Brexit or no Brexit. Um, in Germany, the economy, of course, you know, um, there are impacts from whatever happens with the German chancellor. Uh, in Asia, um, and especially China, you know, this whole tozu, this whole fight between the U.S. and China uh, is, a, is a major, uh, is a major uh, factor that companies have to weigh. And certainly in the U.S., the, the American president has the right to say today, you know, well, we're going to impose 20% tariff or we're not going to impose 20% tariff, or we're going to start it next week, or we're not going to start it at all, and, and all that. <laughs> so if you're a forecaster for this industry, or an industry executive, and you're trying to determine, you know, how much to put into production, what amount of capital expenditure you should be planning for, and what's your outlook for this quarter, Q4, is going to, should be, and what you should be projecting for 2020, you now have to consider factors 
over which you have absolutely zero control. That's a problem. Do you think that this is a recent phenomenon? It, it's not. It's, it's actually not, but it's never been this... Um, obvious. It, it's never been this... Well, I mean, I wouldn't even want to use the word obvious. I would say that the impact has not has never really been this intense. Ah. I mean, and it's, it's, it's happening on a very, very real-time level. Yeah. For a good example, you have um, the, the U.S. administration saying that they were going to impose tariffs on electronic uh, import from China. That was, um, that was in Q3. And then sometimes during, towards the end of the quarter, um, the American president said, no, you know what, because of Q4 and end of year sales, they weren't going to do that. Well, it turns out that um, part of the reason for doing this was because somebody had a hotline to Mr. Trump. That somebody uh, was Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, who was introduced to Mr. Pr- Mr. Trump by Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. Now, after a discussion with the president, the president now announced that, you know what, because you know, the tariff will hurt Apple. They were no longer going to apply in Q4. That's good news for Apple, okay? But which it makes me, oh, and by the way, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, so you need a hotline to a political leader. If you have a hotline to Boris Johnson, maybe you'll get your way. If you have a hotline to the Chinese president, maybe you'll have your way. And I know so many Chinese companies would love to have a hotline <laughs> to somebody in power. Uh, if you have a hotline to somebody in, uh, in Brazil, maybe you'll have some tariffs waived. Maybe the, the, the amount of uh, local content in your, pro- in your product may be reduced so that you can, you can have your product sell over there, which will then positively impact your forecast. So it makes me wonder how many of us really do have hotlines to these power brokers. I mean, I, I would really like to know, Junko, you know, do you have a hotline to somebody uh, at Aspen Core who can just make all your hurdles go away? <laughs> I wish, right? That's everybody's wish. But here's the thing. So what's this relationship with Tim Cook and President Trump? What does it represent? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely relationship right now. Okay, here's a quote from the Wall Street Journal from Mr. Trump okay. describing uh, Tim Cook. He said, Tim Cook is a great executive. I'm quoting him now. Others go out and hire very expensive consultants. Tim Cook calls Donald Trump directly. Now, this is really, really terrible news for consultants. If all of these CEOs have a hotline to Mr. Trump and Mr. Trump does whatever it is that they ask him to do. But on the other hand, we all know that not everybody is going to have a hotline to the president. And we also know that not, even when you have a hotline to the president, it doesn't mean he's going to just agree with everything that you suggest, which means that, you know, now you're kind of uh, throwing it at the wall and hoping that something sticks. It's not the best environment when the economy is kind of swooning and you are not sure which direction it's going to go and you're looking at the factors that you can that you can you know measure very very well now you cannot measure 
who is able. You cannot really determine how much impact political leaders are going to have on your business, but it has become a major factor. It is something that CEOs of the biggest companies in our market have to consider. They cannot just close their eyes and say, you know what, let's go into the boardroom, let's come up with the best plans that we have, let's come up with the best products that we have. You cannot ignore political actors and their whims. Tariffs that the U.S. levies are paid by Americans. So far, most U.S. tariffs have not affected the average American consumer. But that's about to change, with many tariffs on consumer goods about to take effect. Top executives in the retail industry have gone public with warnings about how this trade war will be damaging to their business and their customers. Though several high-tech companies have been compelled to divulge decreases in revenues that they attribute to the trade war when discussing quarterly results, the electronics industry has otherwise been silent about the matter. In 1877, Astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli announced that he had detected the existence of canals on Mars. In 1897, H.G. Wells published The War of the Worlds. The fascination with the red planet has never abated since. There were the Martian Chronicles, Kim Stanley Robinson's epic trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. Recently, there was the National Geographic TV show called simply Mars. In recent years, there's been a growing desire to take a visit to Mars out of the realm of fiction. People are proposing actually going, perhaps no one more earnestly than the always fascinating Elon Musk, who recently unveiled a gleaming new rocket of a design that might, in fact, get us to the red planet. EE Times and EDN, our stablemate here at Aspen Core Media, have been keeping track of what it may take, from an engineering perspective, to get to Mars. From an engineering perspective, one of the several enormous challenges about a trip to Mars is returning. This week, we invited our resident space expert, George Leopold, to talk to us about a bold plan to get back from Mars, should we ever go. I would like to take just a moment to point out how pleased we are to be able to say we actually have our very own space expert. But anyway, I asked George the first, most obvious question about going to Mars. Is it really practical to get to Mars anytime soon? Soon meaning, uh, I don't know, 10 years? That's a good question. Yeah, he's, he, uh, Musk just they gave an update on this uh, Starship hopper that I think he's gotten up uh, a couple hundred feet and then brought it back down. And I think they're, you know, they're in the process of trying to scale the thing up. And so there's that... Uh, then there's you know the story we had uh, this past week about these guys who have uh, one of the great aspirational goals I think I've ever heard, which is how do you get back? And their idea is we're going to send a 3D printer to the surface of Mars. It's the company Relativity Space that's making rockets and rocket uh, engine components using 3D printers. Well, we should probably stop for a second. I mean, uh, is it commonly known that just getting there would rule out coming back? Yeah. In many ways, it's probably a one-way trip because, you know, it's a minimum of nine-month one-way trip there. You got to bring all your consumables. You got to get down to the surface and then how do you get off the surface? That means you got to bring a hell of a lot of propellant with you. And, you know, some of the scenarios that have been proposed, you, you know, you make the fuel from the components you have on the surface. And that was always the thing about finding, uh, finding ice 
uh, yeah. being able to break down for not only oxygen but hydrogen to use yeah. for fuel, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. You could you could uh, you could make propellants, and and you know their idea is that there are uh, they called them weldable products on the surface of Mars, namely iron, that you could use in a metal 3D printer to make the things that relativity space is now making on Earth. And it's, you know, it, so it addresses this problem of how do you get back because that really hasn't been solved and it's quite likely that any scenario now is probably a one-way trip. And, and interestingly, there are lots of people who are willing to do that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I, so... This presumes uh, the ability to mine, I would suppose. I mean, are, are the, the constituent elements that you need to build um, build what you need there just lying on the surface? Well, yeah, that, those are the, all of the things that the, would clearly have to be figured out before we could, <laughs> they could even attempt something like that. But, you know, I think theoretically these you can do these things. And if nothing else, I give these two young, pretty sharp guys from Relativity Space credit for, you know, at least coming up with a, a very theoretical mode for getting to Mars and getting back, you know, this was this was a big debate during Apollo. They 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 had to figure out the mode by which we would get there. There was, you know, big rocket direct ascent. There was Earth orbit rendezvous, and the mode they decided on, which was lunar orbit rendezvous, which turned out to be the fastest, cheapest, and lightest, you know, emphasis mm -hmm. on weight way of getting to the surface and then getting two guys back up the, from the surface. So, you know, they're sort of thinking along the same lines and they're sort of using some of the same uh, innovative thinking that was used during Apollo to do things like, you know, welding huge sections of aluminum because you couldn't use bolts and those types of things. Mm -hmm. So you got to give them credit for that. But as I say, it's one of the big, the greatest aspirational goals I've ever heard of. But uh, they're throwing it out there. So let's see what happens. It's a clever way to do it. Um, you know, it's it's interesting reading a lot of uh, not not a lot of people are taking the idea seriously of going to Mars. Um, you're beginning to finally listen to all of the uh, all of the hurdles that have to be taken care of. I mean, I think maybe we've, a lot of people might have seen the movie The Martian or read the book. Um, I think uh, the movie kind of skipped over the fact that you're subject to a lot of radiation constantly. Yep, that's one of the big uh, problems is how do you survive a nine-month trip to Mars? How do you shield humans from all of that radi radiation? One of the more uh, really out there proposals was to use human waste as an insulator inside the spacecraft, believe it or not. So that's uh, talk about creative thinking. But And of course, the Martian uh, uh, popularized the growing of potatoes using you-know-what. <laughs> <laughs> uh, compost, let's say. Yeah, right. Well, George, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you. That was George Leopold. George is the author of a fine biography of Gus Grissom, one of the original Mercury astronauts. It's called Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom, published by Purdue University Press. Hey, do you remember the past? On October 7th, 1954, IBM modified one of its computers, based on reliable vacuum tubes, with a new technology invented seven years prior. 
The modified version of the IBM 604 computer was one of the first, if not the first, functional computers built with transistors. There's some argument about whether it reduced the computer's size. The transistors did in fact take up less room than the vacuum tubes, but the physical dimensions of the system were unchanged. What was absolutely clear was the power savings. The 604 with transistors ran on 5% of the power of the unmodified 604 running on tubes. Three years later, in December of 1957, IBM would introduce to the market the 608, the first commercial computer based on solid-state electronics. On October 6, 1942, Charles Carson received a patent for a copying process that he called electrophotography, a process he developed in his kitchen in Queens, New York. In fact, the first successful electrophotograph carried the date and location of the experiment, 10-22-38, Astoria. Electrophotography would also come to be called xerography, which meant dry writing. That was in contrast to the commonly used mimeograph, which was a wet process. The Haloid Company of Rochester, New York, learned of the patent and eventually negotiated with Carlson for an exclusive license. On October 22, 1948, 10 years to the day after Carlson made his first successful electrophotograph, the first Xerox photocopier hit the market. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending October 11th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with the links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. Check in with us next Friday for a new edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santel.